Nancy, I was terrified that Robert Kennedy was going to expose their role in his brother's assassination. There's a lot of evidence that the CIA knew that Bobby Kennedy had a very serious interest in what had really happened and that Bobby Kennedy did not believe the official verdict. There's an interesting kind of Iranian thing that's happening as a backdrop to this assassination. In the 60s, the U.S. was giving the Shah a lot of aid money. But at some point, Congress got interested where aid money was going, and they started a little investigation. Large sums of money would be deposited into the Shah's personal account. Todd finds out as the aid money really is going to not just the Shaw, but some of it's going back to big names like Alan Dulles, oh. David Rockefeller, Henry Luce in the amount of five hundred thousand, one one million, two million to David Rockefeller. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Tonight, the Bobby Kennedy assassination. Tonight all of America is listening. Tonight, all of Iran is listening. And tonight, indeed, the whole world is listening. Tonight, well, let's just say this one's for Bobby. Tonight on Night Fright, it's the Bobby Kennedy assassination. And oh, oh, what a show we've got for you. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. To Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. And a good evening to one and all. Tonight, it's the last of our Bobby... Kennedy assassination special. Now, folks, this show is going to stun you. This show is going to look at the connection of Iran, the Iranian secret police, the CIA, British intelligence, and the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. We're going to take a look at CIA involvement in the Iranian revolution. That's right, folks. Only on Night Fright and only by the incredible investigative research of Lisa Pease. Now, let me just tell you what Oliver Stone said about Lisa Pease. And, of course, you all know who Oliver Stone is, famous director. He said, Lisa Pease is a revelation to the uninitiated, a necessary witness for the rest of us. Lisa Pease is an archaeologist of our secret history. And indeed, on the phone live from L.A. is Lisa Pease. Lisa, welcome back. Oh, thank you. It sounds good to be here. It's so nice to have you back. It truly, truly is. My air conditioning running here, too, if you hear loud noise in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not complaining because you're, you're not going to believe this, but three weeks ago on Sunday, 
which is unheard of. In my whole life, I woke up to snow. Oh and, my God. Yeah, that's exactly. I had other words for God, apparently, with that. <laughs> oh, he's getting me back. This explains everything. <laughs> I shouldn't have cursed him out. And today it is, oh, in the mid-30s here. Um, let me do that again. I guess it would be the 90s. Lots of humidity and stuff. It's just great. I love this weather. I truly, truly do. Let's get in to the Bobby Kennedy assassination. I wonder if you could, for the uninitiated, just walk us through a brief overview of the official version of what happened that day, June 4, 1968, just so folks have a an idea of what happened, and then we'll go into all the details. Is that okay. good with you? Sure. Great. Sure. Okay. So uh, as far as, you know, most of the people on the planet knew at the time, <laughs> the night of June 4th was the California primary. It was a very key turning point in the Democratic presidential nomination that year. Bobby Kennedy had actually entered the race late. Um, people who follow elections now know it can be over after the first two primaries, and in those days that wasn't the case. It could go all the way at the convention without a nominee being determined. And, in fact, the man who ended up being the nominee, Hubert Humphrey, hadn't even run in the primary because he was planning to do all his finagling at the convention and to pressure you know, LBJ supporters there. That's how it used to be done. The primary vote was kind of a a popularity contest, but it didn't always carry a lot of weight. But the California one did, because they had actual designated delegates. It was a really big, important race. And Bobby Kennedy had actually just lost a primary previously. He had lost Oregon. And so there was a lot of speculation that, oh, you know, he's not just going to walk away with this. It's a real it's a real race to the finish. You know, he might get it, he might not. And so that's one of the reasons Bobby didn't declare victory early in the night, even though a lot of the polls suggested he was pretty far up. But they had said that in Oregon, and then he ended up losing. So they were being very conservative, and it wasn't until a little after midnight that they finally you know, felt that enough votes had been counted. It looked like his lead was really solid and absolutely going to hold. And his, his entourage went down. Um, they were staying at the Ambassador Hotel. I mean, they had a suite that night. He was not sleeping there. He'd slept out in Malibu the night before. But he'd driven into town and, you know, was up in his suite, came down, walked through a pantry area. Um, it's hard to, you know, describe the layout of the Ambassador Hotel, but imagine a big, you know, rectangular room. That was the ballroom where he spoke. And just north of that, there was a small, narrow passageway that the kitchen people used. Um, there was an ice machine there. There were steam tables. You know, it's kind of a staging area for the kitchen to bring food into the bigger area. Okay. Um, so it was, you know, right near the one of the elevators, the freight elevator, kind of dumped them out at the back end of the kitchen. And from there, he could sneak in through the pantry and into the embassy without having to go through all the public places. So it made sense. And he walked through there. He stopped to sign a, a rolled-up poster for a guy named Michael Wayne that I'll come back to. Oh, yeah. Uh, everybody was in a good mood. You know, he walked out. He gave his speech. Uh, when he finished his speech, and now it's off to Chicago, and let's win there. You know, everybody yeah. remembers that. And he turned, and he went back the way he came. He was on his way to see the press in the colonial room, which was just at the end of this pantry. If he had, you know, actually made it all the way through, he would have walked into the printed press room. Um, you know, the television reporters and the radio people were all in the room filming and taping him, but the print reporters were back at their typewriters in this other room, and he didn't want to ignore them. Because, you know, he had actually been a reporter himself years ago. He had some affinity for that. So anyway, as he was on his way through the pantry, a young man, in in a not in a busboy uniform, as is often misrepresented, um, but a young man in a 
light blue shirt and light blue jeans and dark hair and, you know, swarthy looking, stepped out, supposedly said, Kennedy, you son of a bitch, pulled out a gun and started firing. Now, if you're in a room and somebody pulls out a gun and starts firing, what are you going to look at? You're going to look at the gun, right? Because you want to make sure you don't get hit on it. So anybody who could see the gun muzzle was incredibly focused on the gun muzzle at that Mm -hmm. point. All right. And, you know, as far as anybody knew then, there was one shooter. Kennedy fell. Kennedy ultimately died. Um, it was about 24 hours later before they declared him officially dead. They, they rushed him to a hospital. They tried to save his life. Meanwhile, that man, the shooter, was apprehended. And it wasn't for, again, several more hours before they found out his identity. It wasn't until basically his brother walked in and said, oh, my God, that's my brother, Sirhan. Um, you know, that, that he was identified. So he was kind of held as John Doe originally. But but that's the official story. One man stepped out, fired, you know, at Kennedy at quote unquote point blank range, which we'll see is kind of misleading, but that's what people were told at the time. And uh and then Kennedy died, like I said, about twenty four hours later. Um Okay. Of course that's the official story. <laughs> <laughs> and now the problem is that during the night as we away. were walking through the pantry and looking around, all kinds of discrepancies started to arise. For example, Kennedy wasn't the only one shot in the pantry. Four other people were wounded, and all four of them had bullets removed from them. So, uh, you know, if if Mm -hmm. Sirhan's gun only held eight bullets and four bullets went into other people, that only left four bullets to cause five wounds in Kennedy. (laughs) Or four wounds, I'm sorry, four wounds in Kennedy, which, you know, okay, so four and four, right, that makes eight. Oh, and yeah, but there were also three holes in the ceiling tiles, too, the police couldn't explain away. So they decided that at least some of the shots from Sirhan's gun went up into the ceiling because there was an odd number one had to go up and stay there. The other, they speculated, could have bounced off the ceiling and come back down and, you know, wounded some people. And a couple people were wounded twice, but so what? The bullet just, like, hit a guy in the butt and then exited the butt and, you know, hit somebody else in the knee. I mean, that's what bullets do, right? You know. <laughs> this is starting to sound like JFK all over again with the magic right. bullet. Right. I call them the, the, the Great Waldo Pepper bullets because <laughs> these these were even more magic than Dooley Plaza. They kind of had to do loop-de-loops. And, and in oh, fact, there were four bullet holes that the FBI photographed and labeled under equivocally as bullet holes in the pantry and uh again if those were bullet holes that meant a bullet had to enter that hole exit that hole and enter a victim because there were no other bullets if there was only one gun you're limited to that eight bullets and of course we know that bullets don't do that a bullet can't fly into a wall stick there exit it of its own accord and and (laughs) jump into a person that's not physically possible you know, and so what did the LAPD do with that? They decided that the four bullet holes the FBI had photographed just weren't bullet holes. You know, well, if we ignore that evidence, then we can stick to our eight-bullet scenario. And that's basically what they did. And, you know, on the one hand, can you blame them? <laughs> you know, who wants to open up a whole conspiracy when it comes to a Kennedy when we're just trying to get over the first Kennedys? Yeah, it's only five years later. I mean, I certainly, I understand the mentality of that, people refusing to believe what is right in front of their eyes and, whether this was an honest mistake or a dishonest mistake is almost beside the point. It was clearly a mistake. <laughs> There's just no way there were only eight bullets fired. There were at least 12 bullets fired, provably, easily provably 12 bullets fired. Like you said, I, I think there, there might have been 13, you know, maybe 14, but provably 12 bullets fired to anybody who's honest who looks at the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a problem because Sir Han was the only person seen firing a gun. Or was he? Because as you start to look at the witness statements, there were several people who actually thought two guns had been used. Some thought that because of the sound. 
Others thought that because they saw a guard who was standing next to Kennedy who had pulled his gun, and one witness thought he saw the gun being fired. Um, this guy was named Donald Shulman. Robert Blakey has made a big deal about Shulman and said his two co-workers were with him and said he wasn't in the pantry at the time of the shooting, so anything he says should just be disregarded. What Blakey you know, doesn't understand uh, is that those guys who said that could themselves have been pressured by the police to say exactly that because witnesses were pressured. Witnesses were threatened. In some cases, witnesses got ransom notes cut out of police magazines. So who do you think is making the threat if it's coming out of a police magazine? Mm -hmm. Not the police. It looks like it's coming from the police. I've seen these ransom notes. In the, they're in the LAPD's files. People were being threatened to shut up. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I take what Shulman's associates say with a grain of salt. I also have seen Shulman talking to a reporter immediately after the fact. And if he's a liar, he's the best I've ever seen in the world. I mean, he is completely shaken by what he's seen. He is the only one who actually described accurately where Robert Kennedy was hit. Most people thought Kennedy was hit three times, and it wasn't until he was in surgery that they realized he'd actually been shot four times. Um you know, in four different places and, or, you know, had four wounds, I should say. Seeing each of the points of entry and labeled them correctly. He'd do that if he wasn't in the room. <laughs> You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Lisa, I want to come back and ask you why, but not yet. Instead, I was wondering, what would be a good time to talk about Mr. Fane Eugene Caesar? Well, sure, we can talk about him now, because I had mentioned the fact that there was a guard with a gun, you know, seen mm -hmm. possibly firing the gun, that his name was Fane Eugene Caesar. Very interesting character. Um, he worked at that point at Lockheed, which was a CIA facility, exactly. where they were building the... Um, uh, the Blackbird, the the U two, the U two you know, spy plane, the spy planes, mm -hmm. essentially that flew in the high atmosphere. Um, later, he went and worked for the Hughes Corporation, which at, at the time that he worked for the Hughes Cor Corporation was almost entirely functioning as a CIA front. In the in the latter part of Hughes' life, the CIA was infiltrating and, and really taking over the Hughes Corporation and using his money for some of their own projects. For years, the Hughes Corporation was run by Robert Mayhew, who we can all come back to later. Oh. But anyway, St. Eugene Caesar, very interesting guy, seen with a gun by three witnesses uh, during the shooting, seen by one witness as actually firing the gun. The witness described it as Fane was firing at Sirhan but missed and hit Kennedy. Which may have been the case, but if that was the case, why didn't he just say that? Yes. Now, of course, St. Eugene Caesar denies having fired a gun. Um, he had a gun on him. I mean, you know, he was a security guard. They were all issued guns. Curiously, there were people who reported seeing the security guard arguing with somebody who exactly matched their hand's description, wearing, you know, light blue shirt and jeans and, you know, short and dark curly hair. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that wasn't Thane Eugene Caesar arguing with, with Sir Han, then it was the other security guard, because for a while there were two guarding the pantry, but at, later in the night there was just one. And, and here's the other thing. Mm -hmm. It, later in the night, it was just Fane Eugene Caesar guarding the pantry, meaning if an assassin with a gun did get in, it's still his fault. That's what he was there to protect against. Yeah. You know, he, he should have been checking top. badges. 
you know, Sirhan didn't have a press badge. He should not have been in that area. There's no excuse for him being in that area. Like I said, he wasn't wearing a white busboy uniform, as has mistakenly been reported in a couple places. You know, there was he was obviously out of place, and other witnesses in the pantry noticed him right away. He caught their attention because he seemed out of place. It's like, who is this guy? What is he doing here? All through the night, people had noticed Sirhan in the company of two other people, which, again, I'll come back to. Um, and he just stood out. If you've ever been to a party and somebody's in a bad mood and everybody else is in a party mood, yeah. that person who's in a bad mood really stands out. You can't help but notice they don't fit in. Absolutely. And I'm sure we've all seen that, you know, in an office party or somewhere. We've all had that, that negative presence in a positive moment. That's a good analogy. And yeah, it, it's it's a very noticeable thing. So I find the, the reports of, you know, these Sirhan sighting threats not very credible because, they all kind of had the same reaction. He just didn't seem to fit in. It's like, mm -hmm. it didn't seem like he should be there. And so Thane should have picked up on that, being the security guard for the room. Um, Thane Eugene Caesar was filmed by a reporter named Ted Chirac, who you know, got him on camera. Mm -hmm. Ted kind of pretended to be a, you know, a Kennedy hater, I guess, and got Thane to be very vocal about his own enmity towards the Kennedys and how he hated those guys. And, you know, blame them for a lot of the country's problems. So certainly there was no love lost there. Um, also, the only one in the physical position necessary to kill Kennedy, according to the autopsy report. Yeah, and the autopsist, uh, Thomas Noguchi, did a really good job with this. He found powder burns on Kennedy's skull. And powder burns means, you know, if, if you actually have the nitrates on the skull, it meant the gun had to be very close, like within an inch or two or three. Um, and so he, what Noguchi did is he took pig's ears and he fired a gun from successively further away distances, starting like literally at point blank with the gun practically touching, you know, the, the ear and then, you know, moving back until they found the ear with the exact pattern. And that's how he determined the distance. And he figured the fatal shot that hit Kennedy had to have been fired from not more than an inch and a half away in order for that stippling pattern of the powder from the gun to have had that effect. And Sirhan, by all accounts, and remember, people were intensely focused on his gun muzzle because they did not want to get hit. <laughs> if, Like I said, if somebody's firing a gun around you, this will be a memory you never forget. And those people were very consistent in placing the gun muzzle about three feet from Kennedy. You can't mistake an inch and a half for three feet. Absolutely not. You can not. mistake an inch and a half for a foot and a half, you know, but not for three feet, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know. And and there there were a couple witnesses who said point blank range, and and then when the police later had them demonstrate what they mean by that, they placed the gun about three feet away. Mm -hmm. So you know, just because somebody says point blank, it doesn't mean that's what they meant. And that the police have been kind of misleading the way they've used certain statements to support their case when when mm -hmm. you look at the full interview and, and what they actually did, or in some cases it's even on camera where the witness placed the gun. It's clearly further away than that. There's only one person who thought that uh, Sirhan was closer than a foot, but that was a guy who was looking through a camera at him head on. So you're, oh, that's, yeah. you, you know, again, if you're looking at something straight ahead, you're not a good judge of distance. Absolutely if you're looking from not. an angle or the side, you've got a much better sense mm -hmm. of the distance between objects. So I discount that because, it, you know, one, it doesn't fit all the others. Two, there's a good reason it doesn't fit all the others. Um, and these, you know, these witnesses, it's not like any of them knew each other or conspired mm -hmm. to come up with a three-foot story to protect Sirhan. I mean, <laughs> there's no reason for that. They're all 
separate individuals who just happened to be there that night. There was another anomaly that sticks out also, and you talked about zigzagging and bullets going in reverse direction and things, and that was the fact that Noguchi found that that bullet entered from the rear, and yet nobody ever saw Sirhan Sirhan behind Bobby. Right. Kennedy was coming forward through the pantry towards Sirhan, he had turned sideways so that his right shoulder was facing Sirhan just before the shooting began. He had just started to turn around right. Now, if if Sirhan had if he had stayed facing sideways and Sirhan had somehow lunged in and everybody had missed it, it would still not be the right angle. Exactly. Sirhan would still be off by about ninety degrees. <laughs> so even you know if you give that Kennedy was turned, Kennedy would have had to literally turn around and start walking backwards towards the stage he had just left, which no one reported that he did, for the shot to have entered from behind if Sirhan was firing the gun. Now, of course, mm-hmm. if the guard was firing the gun, it makes a lot of sense because the guard, Danny Jean Caesar, was holding Kennedy's left elbow, I mean his right elbow, mm-hmm. with his left hand. And again, this is one you'd almost have to try with another person, but if you were with your own left hand to take the right elbow of somebody else, where does that leave your right hand? Free. You can now lift that person's arm and shoot them under the arm in the armpit <laughs> where no one will see the gun because your arm is hiding it. And I, I believe that that's what Thane Eugene Caesar did. I believe that he was the shooter. I believe that he lifted his arm and fired three shots right down the back. As is the pattern, it would give us the steep upward angle mm-hmm. and the back-to-front entry because um, the shots were at a really steep upward angle. I mean, uh, how do I want to say? It's like 70 degrees to the vertical. You know, it's almost 90 degrees up. And, and again, we know this because there's an entrance and an exit hole for most of these wounds, so you can see where the bullet entered and exited, and that's how they map the path through the body. Lisa, there's a question that begs to be answered, and that is why, but also I want to ask you, just speculate, do you feel Thane Eugene Caesar, the security guard that was behind Bobby Kennedy, targeted Bobby, or do you feel that he was actually shooting at Sirhan? I don't think there's any way to say he was shooting at Sirhan when the shots go low to high. If he's trying to shoot at Sirhan, the shots that went through Kennedy would have had to go on a horizontal plane. Yeah, that's, that's where Sirhan was standing. Oh. Sirhan was a short guy. These bullets would have gone right over his head. Um, I, you know, anything's possible. Is mm-hmm. it probable? Absolutely not. You know, probably mm-hmm. not. I don't. I don't think there's any evidence to support that it was an accidental shot. I also think if it were an accidental shot, he would have said something like, oh, my God, I shot I shot Kennedy by mistake, but I was trying to take out the shooter. I think people might have believed that, especially if the bullet tracks had matched and if he had no relationship with, you know, these companies that worked for the CIA, if he was truly just an independent, you know, uh, security guard off the street, that, that would have been easier to believe. Um, but, in fact, it turns out uh, a woman wrote in her book Sybil League, who is kind of an interesting character, she had met somebody in Las Vegas who was a like a known hitman, and he was talking to her about this other guy in the room, another assassin, I guess, that he knew, mm. and pointing that guy out to her, and talking to that assassin was saying Eugene Caesar, who the assassin number one wow. identified as Hughes's personal bodyguard. 
which is very interesting because, again, if that were the case, yeah. that puts him very close to the CIA because the CIA was really monitoring Hughes' every move at that point. There's no way there'd be a bodyguard that didn't have some connection to the CIA Holy at that point. Cow. Um, but this is, again, you know, kind of a, a random assertion. I don't know if there's any evidence of that. I don't know if there's any proof of that. No one ever investigated St. Eugene Caesar, so if there were records to that effect, you know, they were never surfaced because no one was ever looking in that direction. It wasn't you know, it's uh, there's there's never been any official reinvestigation of the case at that level. There was a reinvestigation case purely at the level of the bullets, and I do want to talk about that briefly. Okay. In 1975, a judge ordered a panel to retest the bullets and see if they could match them to Sirhan's gun. And what happened is they couldn't match any of the bullets from the pantry to Sirhan's gun, but they could at least match three bullets to each other, one of them being a bullet purportedly from Robert Kennedy. And so the panel concluded that while they couldn't determine how many guns had been used in the pantry, they could at least say that the gun that shot Robert Kennedy also shot two of the other victims, which definitely turned down the noise of St. Eugene Caesar being a deliberate assassin because why would he kill these two other people who had nothing to do with anything, right? Mm -hmm. That would lend to the accidental shooting theory, if anything. And of course, you know, if, if there were no evidence of a second gun, which isn't the same thing as saying there was no second gun, no evidence doesn't mean there was none. Exactly. You know, absence of evidence does not mean evidence of absence. But, uh, but the, of course, the press said, oh, only one gun used in the pantry and reported it as if that were the case. Now, here's there's a couple big problems with that panel. They, they looked at a photo micrograph comparison. They were given a bullet that was alleged to be a Kennedy neck bullet and a test bullet. And they were shown a photograph that was supposed to be comparing these two. Well, when the panel examined it, they found that the second bullet was not a test bullet, was, but was, in fact, another victim bullet. So they felt that the, that the LAPD had been lying to them. They were trying to show that a test bullet from Sirhan's gun matched the Kennedy's neck bullet to frame Sirhan. And the panel found that lie and exposed it. But what the panel didn't find was the second lie, and that's that neither of those bullets had the markings that would indicate they were those same bullets, meaning the one that they thought was the Kennedy neck bullet in the panel, the marking on the base, according to the panel's mm -hmm. record, was BWTN. And yet Thomas Noguchi, who had marked the bullet originally, had marked the base of the bullet TN31. And if Dwayne Wolfer oh. added his initials, he would have had to add them elsewhere because the base of the bullet isn't big enough to hold DWTN31. <laughs> Nor is that what the panel found. And the other two bullets that matched each other mm -hmm. also did not match the original markings as recorded in the record. The panel... They inventoried the evidence, but they never checked the markings to see if they were, in fact, the same bullets. And, you know, my, my plea to the world is, oh, my God, if you're in a forensic investigation, that's the whole reason we mark bullets is so that you can, you know, verify exactly. that it's the same bullet years later. <laughs> if the marking is different, hello, it's not the same not, bullet. Remember the Tippett bullets? Tippett was the fellow folks in the JFK right. assassination, just to let you know who, who Tippett was. Police officer who was allegedly shot by Lee Harvey Oswald, as a... And the police officer, the sergeant, I forget his name, who was responsible to collect the bullets put his initials on these bullets that were found outside the murder scene. And when people were given bullets to examine, those initials were not there. 
Right. It's the same and damn hello, thing. Again, that means it's not the same. Exactly. Or this should be Forensics 101. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hello, CSI would never let that go Jeez. by. The writers would have a fit over that. <laughs> no kidding. Lisa, we're right. going to take a quick station break. I'm just going to tell folks who we're speaking with and the different various stations that are hearing the show around the country. Folks, we are indeed speaking to the one, the only Lisa Pease, and as always, She's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. She brings all this knowledge and all these facts. This is our fourth show of the Bobby Kennedy assassination. And I thought I had heard it all. And I'm learning stuff tonight. Big time. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University, Sudbury, Ontario. Beautiful day in Sudbury today. Wednesdays between 3 and 5 in the afternoon and 10 and midnight at night. I really want to thank Deborah Frankel tonight because she is going above and beyond for this show. She is really putting a lot of behind-the-scenes work to make sure this show gets on air, and it happens and this information gets out to you. I can't think of another general manager that would take on that type of dedication, and I just really, truly want to thank her. You are also listening to Caper Radio in Cape Breton University, God's Country, Sydney, Nova Scotia, Wednesdays, 3.30 in the afternoon to 5.30 in the evening. And you're listening to CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University in Rockin' Thunder Bay, Sunday nights at midnight. And as always, guys, if you're listening right now, so am I. And I want to say hi to Jason Wellwood. CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the eastern townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec. And they broadcast the show every Saturdays from 9 in the evening to 11. And I want to say hi to David Teasdale. How you doing, my friend? CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba. Winnipeg, Manitoba, Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings at 1 a.m. Hey, Jared McKidiak, I hope things are well with you. And folks, if you're listening right now at that hour, thank you so much for your support and keep those emails coming. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario, Sunday nights, Monday mornings, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., three shows back-to-back. Road Dog, my friend. When are you getting up to Sudbury for that coffee? CKXU 88.3 FM, University of Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Alberta. Another beautiful, beautiful campus in Canada. Friday nights at midnight. And again, if you're listening, thank you for your support. Alan Gillespie, how are you, my friend? CIVL 88.7 FM, University of the Fraser Valley in beautiful, beautiful Abbotsford, B.C., and that's Thursdays at 2 p.m. and Friday mornings at 2 a.m. want to say hi to Amos Evans. And if you're a trucker, trucking across on the Trans-Canada or maybe the 401 and you're listening right now, thank you so much for listening and your support. And um, keep those emails coming, too. Any show suggestions you may have, just send them right along. I'm going to mention our website right now, www.nightfright.com show.com www.nightfrightshow.com and I've made that a focal point folks for everybody that listens to Night Fright you can go there there's links 
to the guests that we have on to their own personal sites. In Lisa's case, for example, click on the little thing that says Lisa Pease. You're going to go right to her blog. Click on the book, and you're going to go right to the book that says The Assassination. So all that to say, folks, is I've made the website a focal point. You can go there, click on the book, uh, right beside Lisa Pease, it says The Assassinations. It was written with Jim DiEugenio, another great guest I've had on the show talking about Bobby Kennedy and JFK also in the past. That'll take you to their website, which is ctka.net, ctka.net. Most important thing there, folks, the archives. You can go to the archives, and all the shows since October, since we started streaming, are there. And uh, just download. They're free to download. Enjoy yourself. There's uh, how many shows have we done now, Lisa? Together, three. And this is our fourth. Three, four, yeah. Somewhere around there. <laughs> uh, there's two on conspiracies that we've done with Lisa. One on um, JFK. There's another one we did on Martin, Martin Luther King. King and Tesla. That was a fun show. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we're doing a fourth one. So all those shows are there. There's shows on Bigfoot. There's shows on paranormal activity. I had a woman on here um, a few weeks ago, and, and she was talking about she'd just come from a haunting. And that was electric. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff there for you to listen to. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host. Brent back to Lisa Pease. Let's go back now, Lisa. I want to ask. I, I want to make one correction because oh, I, I said a name earlier. I, was, I said a book by Robert Blakey, and of course, Robert Blakey was the head of the HSCA, and I don't know why I put his name there instead. But I, I was referring okay. to the book by Robert Blair Kaiser. Okay. He's the one who doesn't believe Don Schulman. I do. Like I said, he believes his friends. I believe Schulman himself, based on the video I've seen and the known police uh, intimidation of other witnesses. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, which also brings up a point. Don't believe anything anybody says, even me. (laughs) I'm giving you leads for information, and you can verify what I say, you know, or correct what I say by doing your own research. Um, It's it's really important. You never take anybody at face value, even if they're a trusted source. It's, It's just great to verify when you can. Absolutely. And um, it's great to make your own decisions, too. And that's what we try to do with this show is just put the information out there for you and go back and do your and pick up the mantle. I mean, just pick it up and go with it, folks. If you're a budding writer out there, if you're a budding journalist, investigative reporter, go for it. Um, but please be careful. Please don't add to the disinformation by being sloppy and muddy in the waters. Please, please, please. There's a good I'm caveat. Sick of people who kind of half-ass their research and and claim to be experts. Most of the people who claim to be experts aren't. It's the ones who are quietly doing the work, you know, that are the real. Ones. That are the real ones. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah. Good point. A very, very good point, actually. Let's um, go so back. Uh, yeah, let's dive yeah. right back into the Bobby Kennedy assassination. We're speaking right. with Lisa I'd like Pease. to tell you something that happened the day after, you know, well, when Bobby was still alive but dying, essentially. Mm. Um, he was kind of brain dead early on, but, you know, they weren't certain of that until later. But anyway, on June 5th, so this is, you know, he was shot right after midnight, so this is early on the day, June 5th, back east. Um, a CIA officer was holding a class who was teaching... Um, a joint Army-CIA operation 
uh, for people in Vietnam, and the colonel of the, the army unit basically said to him, congratulations, now it won't be us, you guys are great, only for Christ's sake, having your agent use that small caliber weapon is taking an awful chance, he's not dead yet. And Smith was appalled. You know, this is Joseph Burkholder Smith, and he assured his class the CIA didn't kill either Kennedy and didn't kill Martin Luther King. The CIA, he said, never operates against Americans. Years later, he found out that wasn't true. The CIA mm-hmm. did operate against Americans, which made him hopefully question some of his other assertions. And, of course, why did this Army colonel assume the CIA had killed Kennedy? Well, he had more context than Joseph Burkholder Smith did. You know, Smith was part of the, you know, a more liberal segment of the CIA that wasn't so vehemently opposed to what Kennedy was doing. The Army, on the other hand, was vehemently opposed to, you know, both Kennedys. And, you know, they wanted to end the war that these guys were running. And it's like, who are you to tell us how to do our business? (laughs) We want to win the war. We don't want to end the war. We don't want to lose the war. We want to win the war. And as we all know, that wasn't a winnable war. And both Kennedys knew that and tried to end it in their own ways. And both, of course were stopped by bullets in that effort. And Martin Luther King, too. Exactly. And Malcolm X. And Malcolm X, there you go. Also speaking out against the war. War is big business, as people know. That's why we're having such trouble not only getting out of Iraq, but now, you know, I I really fear Afghanistan is our next Vietnam, because no one from the Western world has ever won a war there. (laughs) Why do we think we can? It's just nutty. I don't think it's winnable. You know, I think Obama was trying to, uh, how do I want to say, um, I, I won't speculate on his motives. Uh, it's probably not fair, but I think he's making a big mistake there. I think he might think he's doing it for the right reasons, but I still think it's a big mistake. I'm going to speculate, too, just for a quick second. I always thought by sending more troops into Afghanistan, perhaps what he's trying to do is ease his way out of Iraq. Right. I, you know, I, I, I agree. I think that's and, part of his motivation. Yeah. And I think he thinks Afghanistan might be a smaller, containable operation, go in, get bin Laden, mm-hmm. and get out. I don't even know if bin Laden's still alive. Sometimes I wonder if, you know, people are just propping up, you know, making fake videos of him. You know, who knows? This kind of stuff happens. Absolutely. Who are we to be able to tell the difference? You know, MIT once mm-hmm. did a study where they... they created a video of somebody speaking a language the person never spoke, meaning they used existing footage and then altered, digitally altered their mouth and had them speaking in a different language and telling jokes in another language. And when they showed real videos and altered videos to an audience, no one could tell the difference. No one watching could could tell at all which was the altered video. So that's how sophisticated that stuff is. And we just shouldn't take anything for granted that we see on TV as being real. We just don't know. And that's that's a shame to have to live in a world like that, but that's where we're at. And, and that's where we're at. can be altered anything. Which, by the way, since we are about to talk about Iran in a minute, mm-hmm. and um, I do want to express some sympathy for what the people are going through there. As an American, I know what it feels like to have your vote stolen. We had it done twice, I believe strongly, in 2000 and 2004. I don't believe this country liked Bush either time. Um, second time, I think he got closer, but I think Ohio was rigged. And, um, you know, we certainly don't have time to go into that now. But I would like to say that if anybody in America is listening and if you care about stolen elections, there's a bill moving through our Congress right now um, by Representative Rush Holt. It's a very important bill, and I'm very sad to say that some election activists who are big names in the field have it really wrong about this bill and have been um, – 
you know, basically saying it's not good enough, and it's going to institutionalize secret vote counting, all kinds of lies, outright lies about the bill. In fact, this bill would require that all machines, you know, that all votes are cast on paper that can be recounted later. That is very key, because right now there are several states where the votes are cast only on computers, which means anybody with access to disks and who knows what they're doing can change votes in a way that can't mm-hmm. be detected. And this is a, a virus that we're now spreading around the world. Other countries, you know, even Iran is like, oh, see, our paper vote, you know, screwed up. Maybe we should use computers. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that'll make it worse. And I say this as a computer programmer. I know what I'm talking about. You can you can write programs that self-delete. You can do all kinds of things. Do not trust your vote to a computer ever, 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 ever. Okay. Right, having said that, let's uh, go back to the RFK case. And by the way, Canada isn't immune from that, too. I went through a 1995 referendum in Montreal, as you know, I'm from there originally, uh-huh. and uh, the referendum was whether Quebec was going to separate from the rest of Canada, and the separatists left the ballot boxes, and that was found out to be true three years wow. later. Unbelievable. And that's in Quebec. And in, did they stuff them with paper ballots or yep. electronic ballots? No, they were paper. Yeah. And, and that's that's a point, too. I, I yeah. believe strongly we need a hand count and a computer count, because you can rig either one. But to rig two to exactly match is pretty much impossible to do. Yeah. And that way, one serves as a balance check on the other. So I'm not somebody who is completely opposed to having machines counter vote, which puts me at odds with a lot of the voting activists who don't want computers anywhere near our vote. But, uh, you know, for that reason, you know, the people have been stuffing ballot boxes since the beginning of time and having dead people vote and all kinds of other things. So I do think we need a mix. But mm. anyway. Okay. Uh, Let's so so we have too many bullets. We have, you know, a possible second shooter. Um, in my mind, we have a possible th- third shooter, and at some point I'll come to that. Uh, but meanwhile, let's talk a little bit about um, the Iranian connection, if there is one. Mm-hmm. And I think it's and it certainly brings up an interesting part of history, whether or not it directly pertains to this case. It certainly pertains to what's going on in the world right now. Absolutely. For example, the right wing is really mad at Obama for not coming out and, you know, decrying the current Iranian government and siding with the activists. And I understand, you know, this one I do understand his motivation. Our hands are not clean in the United States in regarding Iran. You know, we fomented a coup against uh a democratically elected leader there in 1953, the mm-hmm. CIA and British intelligence got together. And um, after they had made their plans, then they went and persuaded President Eisenhower to sign on, which is an interesting order of operations. Isn't <laughs> that be interesting? The other way around. Well, that's what I would figure. <laughs> but I'm old-fashioned like that. Go figure. Yeah. Right? yeah. I thought the president was supposed to initiate actions. But anyway, CIA decided this would be a good idea and convinced Eisenhower to go along. And they went in and they they brought in a guy who was so scared he ran away from his own coup. <laughs> and the CIA had to coax him back to his country. <laughs> this was the Shah of Iran. Yeah, I know. I'm he was not his father, who had been a military leader and had, you know, taken the country by storm and you know fomented his own coup in his time. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, the CIA installs their little puppet, who, by the way, the Shah of Iran had actually gone to Swiss boarding school with Richard Helms. I have a photo of the two of them together, and it looks like a soccer team photo or something. A soccer team. Can you yeah. tell the folks who Mr. Helms was? Richard Helms, uh, director of the CIA uh, for several years, uh, fired by Richard Nixon after Watergate um, for not claiming Watergate was a CIA operation, not with Nixon probably not knowing it really was a CIA operation. Hmm. That's a story for another time. Oh. Uh, 
Uh, and, and before he left, relevant to this case, Richard Helm burned some very important files on his way out of the CIA. He became ambassador to Iran, ironically enough. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Right yeah, before the but, uh, Iranian and then revolution. he left Iran just before the hostage mm-hmm. crisis. I can't mm-hmm. help you. Help set that. You know, can't help but wonder if there was some part of him that set that in motion, but that would be pure speculation. But what Helms did do before leaving CI is he insisted one set of files be found and destroyed, and that was the MK Ultra files. A lot of people, and I'm sure your other, you know, people have commented on Sirhan's state at the time. When Sirhan was exactly. firing the gun, several people commented on how calm he seemed. He had a sickly smile. He had abnormal strings. These are all signs of somebody under hypnosis. Mm-hmm. His defense team... You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Lisa, can I just interrupt you for a second? Sure. I'm just going to plug my show with Jim that we did two weeks ago from Montreal. It okay. was specifically on that, folks. If you go to www.nightfrightshow.com, it was uh, two weeks ago. Jim Eugenio and I did a show. I broadcast from Montreal about 20 feet from the Allen Memorial. And the Allen Memorial is where the CIA did a lot of their mind control experiments, right there at McGill University. And we went in depth about that, actually. So if you, there's some good information there. Also on the website, if you click on Photos... I've taken some photos of the Allen Memorial. I've also taken some photos of where Oswald was spotted in 1963 in Montreal and James Earl Ray. So uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff on the photo information. Also, there's a very important map there that shows where James Earl Ray was spotted and right around the corner where Oswald was spotted and just up the street, the Allen Memorial. Oh, Montreal. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to uh, let folks know there's... They were truly horrific. I read about the things they did. People literally drove them insane and to death in some cases. They had what they called terminal experiments where they literally tortured somebody to death (laughs) just to see how far they could go. Unbelievable. Oh, did you know this? Maybe I'll just tell you this very, very quickly. I was doing some research. I was reading uh, Richard Russell's book, Dick Russell. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, his latest book on the trail of the JFK assassins. Right. In the book, it's a pretty good book. Yeah. Oh, it's really good. You probably know it then about Doctor. Oh, I Hart- reviewed it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Doctor Hartog's and uh, his connection with the Allen Memorial, right, and also right. his connection with uh, being Oswald's Dr. psychologist. Doctor Hartog's being the guy who exactly. was a child psychologist to Lee Harvey Oswald when he was living. That's before. right. Okay, so I can't tell you a darn thing. Here I was. <laughs> <and> I was <laughs> Oh, forget right. it. I'm going to go back and drink my coffee. Like <laughs> I say, just remember, I've probably got about 15 years on you. <laughs> be hard to tell me something I don't know. It just doesn't no, no wouldn't happen. But, uh, Plus, you're one of the top researchers, top two or three researchers in the whole thing. So, what can I tell you, folks? We got the best right here. Lisa Pease. Oh, my gosh. Okay, Iran and Mr. So, Helms. anyway, so, um, so there's an interesting kind of Iranian thing that's happening as a backdrop to this assassination. In the 60s, um, the, the U.S. was giving the Shah a lot of aid money, 
you know, we helped bring him to power That's and right. kept coming to us and saying, oh, I can't do this for my country, or I can't do that, and we could be a showcase and a bulwark against communism, <laughs> but if you can't help us, you know, the Soviets will. And that was the blackmail <laughs> that was always used, always. like, oh, always keep us from becoming communist, despite the fact that Iran is sitting on some of the biggest oil fields in the world, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like, they had the money, they didn't need our money, but, it, you know, it's like the easy spigot threat in communism, and yep. America pays, cha-ching, ching you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like a knee-jerk reaction. So, but at some point, Congress got interested where aid money was going, and they started a little investigation, and they found a curious pattern that, you know, aid money would go in, and all of a sudden, large sums of money would be de- deposited into the Pahlavi Foundation, which was the Shah's personal account. Uh-huh. Well, you know, foundation for him is his twin sister, you know, his children, their their husbands, you know, all, all the mm-hmm. extended family. And, uh, in Iran at the time, there was a man who was trying to work with the Shah to get some deal going. His name was, he was called the Khyber Khan. Um, he was also given the name Ghazarian by an English couple that had adopted him. His father had been killed by the Shah's father um, during the World War II era, and he'd actually been taken to Scotland and raised by a family there. Raised came back to Iran mm-hmm. and became very popular with some of the oil-holding tribes in the southern part of Iran and set up his own kind of informal intelligence network. Hmm. And he literally placed secretaries, gardeners, low-level people inside the Shah's palace and in key government posts, and he had his pulse on everything. He also had a big fancy car where he installed his own taping system and unfortunately lent the car to a friend for a day who ended up driving it to the Shahs who wanted to ride the big fancy car and ended up discovering the taping system. And then he realized who this guy was, that he was really this big spy within his own government. So, so Lisa, this was know, in Tiber the Khan had to kind of flee Iran at that point. Lisa, this was in the 60s? This was in the 60s, yes. Okay. Um, come... 67, I believe, and I'd have to check my notes, but I think it was 67. Um, Khan has now come to America because there's a lot of back and forth. He tries to make a deal with the Shah to get money back because what Khan finds out is is that the aid money really is going to not just the Shah, but some of it's going back to America and going back to big names like Alan Dulles, oh. David Rockefeller, Henry Luce in the amount of 500000 yes, yes. one, one million, two million to David Rockefeller. <sighs> Why is our aid money turning around coming back to America and going as money to this, you know, are they placing investments through those people? Is that a gratuity? Thanks for helping us out. What is that money for? Gratuity. And so um, Khyber Khan Mm -hmm. had operatives that he actually installed, like, in you know, in a place where they could intercept Swiss bank transactions. And they made photocopies of these transactions coming and going. And he ended up taking them to a lawyer in New York City who ultimately got them to Congress and this huge congressional investigation was started. Because you know, if our aid money is is going out and coming back into private individuals' pockets, what the hell is going yeah, on, exactly. right? Yeah. On the other hand, when Congress found out who those people were in America, can you imagine? Now, you're talking like Alan Dulles, the former head of the CIA, the most powerful man in America, the guy who sat on the Warren Commission, a guy who might have even had President Kennedy killed. Mm-hmm. Who in Congress wants to go up against Alan Dulles? Nobody. Who in Congress has the guts to go up against David Rockefeller, the guy who buys half their seats? You know, come on. Mm-hmm. It's like this This is a very uncomfortable position for Congress to be in. And they basically had two choices. They could believe Khyber Khan or they could 
disbelieve him. So, you know, what do you think they chose? <laughs> this isn't rocket science. The yeah. cowards that they are, they decided that Kyber Khan had to be wrong, despite the fact that he provably had his agents in place because he even intercepted some of the Congress's own mailing. Somebody on the McClellan committee that was investigating this had leaked a document to the Iranian embassy and, and Khan's people got a copy of it from the Iranian embassy and took it back to the committee and said, you have a leak on the committee. And he's like, how the hell did you get that document? He's like, because I'm telling you, I got my agents in place. So what do they do? Somebody, you know, whose initials probably are related to CIA, uh, (laughs) goes around and beats up Khan's girlfriend and and beats her black and blue, trying to find the names of these operatives who weren't really copying records, (laughs) who were just making things up. They they beat her up so they could find the the forgers. Come on. They beat her up because they wanted to stop the copying operation. They wanted to cut off the, the flow of information. Um, but she, being a very loyal soul, never gave up those names. And so what do they do next? They come after Khan himself. They beat him up. And, you know, he still, you know, won't drop his charges. Um, but now we're inching into 1968. And now an interesting thing happens because, you know, it's early 68, and now his family is threatened with deportation. And they even have a deportation hearing scheduled May 25th. And, and Robert Kennedy's assassination is June 6th. I mean, we're talking... In little more than a week period of time there, for whatever reason, Khan is not deported on May 25th. Khan is still there on June 4th. And Khan is reported by several people at the Kennedy headquarters as being a suspicious person in the office who hmm. brings in some 40 volunteers, all of whom register at his home address. So who are these people? Where are they from? Why are they all living with him? <laughs> or why are they all you know, pretending to live with him? Because obviously yeah. they're not all living with him. He had a small apartment. There's no way 40 people were staying there. But they were just giving his address so they didn't have to give their own. Um, and with these volunteers, he's been shuttling people back and forth you know, to the hotel that day. And he himself ends up giving a ride to this guy who had his poster sign that I mentioned early on, Michael Wayne. He gives a ride to Michael Wayne, not all the way to the ambassador, but to another hotel along the way, because Michael Wayne's also a collector of political memorabilia, and he stops off at a um, blanket on the other guy's name, um, the other guy who's running the primaries, the other liberal. Oh, uh, Humphrey? Was it Hebrew? Not Humphrey. Forgive uh, me. Yeah, Humphrey wasn't really a liberal. He was a conservative Democrat. <laughs> anyway, the, the yeah, it'll come to me. But anyway, he stops off at a different hotel. Wayne eventually makes his own way to the Ambassador Hotel. Now, what's so interesting about that is, again, here's Khan, the suspicious character. Khan claims he saw Sirhan with a girl in a polka dot dress, which mm. is also interesting. We'll come back to that Absolutely. later. Yeah. Khan's own daughter might have been the girl in the polka dot dress, which we'll come oh. back to later. But Michael Wayne is very interesting because three people told the police and the FBI that they thought they saw him running from the pantry with a gun in a rolled-up poster. Yeah. And uh, Michael Wayne was actually apprehended and handcuffed and held for questioning. The police did question him and release him. And the official story became that Wayne was running to find a phone and that that's why he was suddenly running and pushing people out of the way to get out of the pantry as the shooting began, which is kind of interesting because the first place he ran was the room with the phones. (laughs) And that's where all the press people were. That's where the phones were. But he ran through that room. And out across the lobby, uh, I believe he, if he had a gun, he did a handoff because he was not apprehended, so far as I can tell, with a gun. Um, there was another witness who claimed somebody ran through the hotel lobby, jumped a hedge, and disappeared into the night. 
you know, if there was a handoff, boy, that'd be convenient. You know, mm-hmm. get two people running through the lobby at cross directions. One gives the other the gun. You know, one draws focus, and the other, you know, manages to get out without being stopped. Who knows? I am, that is speculation. But what is not speculation is there were three people on the record thinking he possibly had a gun on him. All three of them eventually retracted under pressure from the FBI and the LAPD saying you couldn't have seen that. He didn't have a gun, therefore you couldn't have seen a gun. <laughs> and they all go, oh, okay, I guess I didn't see that. thought I did, but I guess I didn't. Um, so J- JFK they, again, eh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, what they do is they come to you and they say, do you know it's a crime to lie to a federal officer? I found that finally in the Robert, and the John Kennedy and the Warren Commission record. They said that? That That's the line they used to get people to change their story. Because it's like if you can't prove your case, they can charge you with lying to the federal government. And that's why people back down and retract, because they don't want to be accused of a crime when they're just trying to help. So they say, okay, well, whatever you say, you know, what do I know? I thought I saw that, but maybe I didn't. And, And End of story, and that's how they shut down investigations. It should be a crime for them to say that to a witness. They should be arrested for saying that. It's intimidation. People think they have information. They should be allowed to come forward. Now, obviously, it should be a crime to deliberately, you know, mislead somebody. But I mean, there should be a pretty high bar to pass (laughs) before you. I filed a a report with the FBI over the weekend. I thought somebody, you you know, was scamming me, and Uh it turned out to be, you know, an actual legitimate operation. And and the FBI wisely said, "Well, check it out Monday when their office is open, and if it's, you know." legit don't call us back <laughs> if it's not legit you know then we'll we'll jump on it and it turned out it was a legit thing so glad that they didn't act on it even if, as i was frustrated at the time now i'm grateful they didn't act on it because i didn't want to waste their time or money you know? lisa i just want to draw on another parallel to the jfk assassination you mentioned somebody running looking for a phone reminded me right away of eugene brading the fellow that was uh, arrested braden Right. Uh, that was arrested just outside the Daltex building. He was found lurking on the third floor, folks, in the in Daly Plaza. And as it turns out, he was uh, a mafioso link. And he was arrested and he was released. And what the hell was he doing there? And his excuse was he was looking for a phone also to call his well, here's, mother. Well, here's the difference, though. You know, we don't know what... If Eugene Hale Brading... He, he really might have been looking for a phone. I don't know if I'd buy it, but... Mm. But in, in Michael Wayne's case, we know he wasn't looking for a Absolutely phone because not. he told us that on his own lie detector test. They asked him, were you looking for a phone? And Wayne says, and you can hear it on the tape for yourself, uh-huh. if you get the tape from the California State Archives, he says no. But they <laughs> write his answer down as yes, and that oh. becomes the official story. Now, was that a mistake? Maybe, but that's a pretty damn big mistake. And... It was a sure convenient mistake because if he was just looking for a phone and his lie detector said he passed on that question, end of story, right? Exactly. And that's basically what they did. They washed him away. He said, oh, he's looking for a phone. He passed that question. Well, of course he passed that question. He told the truth. No, he wasn't looking for a phone. No one asked him, well, what were you looking for? What were you doing there? And, in fact, he'd been in a Las Vegas police shooting range recently before that. What? Who did he know in the Las Vegas police force? And Las Vegas is Mayhew's center of operation for Hughes. So whenever I hear Las Vegas... You know, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> that's interesting. You know, is there a link there? There seemed to have been a demonstration of Sirhan in Las Vegas at one point. Uh, a priest at a, a church service oh, yeah. talked about how Sirhan was there one day and stood up and started mumbling incoherently in the middle of the service, literally standing up and mumbling but not making any sense. And, you know, the parishioners were all kind of 
so upset by this, and he ended up pulling the guy aside and couldn't make heads or tail of it. And it really, it reads to me like a demonstration, like somebody wanted to prove they could put Sirhan in a public situation and get him to do something he wouldn't normally do, you know, get up and interrupt the church service. He's a very shy, quiet, extremely polite man. This is not the kind of thing he would do of his own accord. That's a test. And he was exactly. not a drunk, you know, there's mm-hmm. no alcohol in his breath. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like he was doing drugs. He wasn't. Um, you know, certainly not that we know. I mean, there's no evidence of that. If somebody gave him a drug, that's a different story. But there's certainly no evidence that he ever, you know, partook of anything like that. So there aren't a lot of explanations for how that could have happened, but it would sure fit a hypnosis scenario. So anyway, um, okay. like I said, Lisa? Las Vegas with Michael Wayne, Las Vegas with Sirhan, a guy who claimed he had programmed Sirhan himself, mm-hmm. Lee Bryan, a hypnotist, you know, also spent a lot of time in Las Vegas. Okay, hang on to that, Lisa. I've got to do another station break. And when we okay. come back, I want to continue with that line of thought about hypnosis. And also, right. I want to... Get ask, back to Iran. Cause I absolutely, that, yeah. absolutely. And I want to also talk about... Maybe we'll do that after the next break at 11.30. I also want to talk to you about a girl in a polka dot dress. Right. Wow. That's This is explosive, folks, tonight. I'm riveted here. Isn't this incredible? Lisa Pease is here, folks. And as always... Wow. <laughs> what can I say but wow? You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM in beautiful Sudbury, Ontario. And we broadcast every after every Wednesday afternoon between 3 and 5 and also in the evenings between 10 and midnight. You're also listening to Caper Radio, Cape Breton University in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Wednesdays, 3.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon. CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Sunday nights at midnight. CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the eastern townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec, Saturdays between 9 and 11 in the evening. CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings at 1 a.m. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario, Sunday nights, Monday mornings, three shows back-to-back, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. CKXU 88.3 FM, the University of Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Alberta, Friday nights at midnight, CIVL 88.7 FM, University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Thursdays at 2 p.m. and Friday mornings at 2 a.m. Folks, you're going to want to go to the new Night Fright website. And the URL there is www.nightfrightshow.com. www.nightfrightshow.com. There's all kinds of things there for you. Click on all the links. There's one that says photos. It's going to show you a whole photo spread for the UFO special that's coming up next month. And uh, it'll show you all kinds of photos from when I was in Montreal a couple of weeks ago. I was just talking about that on air, about the show we did with Jim Diogenio. We talked about MKUltra and the whole controversy around McGill's involvement with that, with the Allen Memorial, where Oswald was seen in the summer of 1963, just prior to JFK's assassination in Montreal. And I've taken pictures of where, allegedly, 
James Earl Ray met Raoul on De La Commune Street, which is right across from the docks in Montreal. So all those photos are there. There's also a really interesting ghost story from Zimbabwe that was sent to me. And I've posted that on something new that I've added to the website called Bizarre. And folks, if you have any bizarre stories or ghost stories or sightings, paranormal experiences, or any information you want to pass along about any of the conspiracies that we cover, please do email me, and not only will I read it on air, but I will also post it on the website. And if you have photos also of orbs or anything like that along that nature, send them in, www.nightfrightshow.com. Most important thing there are the archives. There's a wealth of information there. All the shows we've done on all the conspiracies, JFK, Martin, and now Bobby. Lisa's there. Three shows, folks. And uh, as always, her shows are amazing. There's a show that she did on Martin Luther King. There's a show on Tesla. There's a show that, there's a show that we did on John F. Kennedy also together. And now we're doing another show on Bobby Kennedy. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. I am glued to my seat. We're talking about how Iran, the CIA, and a coup took place in 1953. And how the ex-head Richard Helms of the CIA became the American ambassador to Iran. Pretty wild, isn't it? We're bringing it all back to the Bobby Kennedy. And then we wonder why they hate us. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And actually, they don't, you know. They don't, really. The people don't hate us. But they also don't want our interference. I mean, that's... Exactly. I was in Europe a few years ago, and some Iranians were protesting. Mm -hmm. and, And, you know, I walked over and I talked to them and I asked them what it was about, and they were talking about some of their political figures, and when they found out they were that I was American, they're like, please don't intervene. We want to do this on our own. Yes. We want to have our own revolution. <laughs> we really want to do this without you. You know. And I thought mm-hmm. that was such an interesting perspective because you know, my instinct would be to reach out a hand and say, hey, you, know, you want freedom? Let me help. And exactly. They were like, we need to do this ourselves to yep. be free. We really need to do this ourselves. And I, I respect that. I respect that immensely. I had that special on this afternoon. I had Iranian-Canadians come in tell their stories, how they came to Canada, persecution they went through. They have family living over there right now. For example, I had a friend call me, a couple of Iranian-Canadian friend who lives not too far from where I do, actually, called me a couple of days ago and said, Iran is on fire. I haven't heard from them since. Uh, There was another harrowing story that I was told that a young guy was studying on his laptop inside his room at home, knock at the door. His laptop was taken, and also he was taken. As the secret police were leaving with him, told his parents, if you don't hear from him in 24 hours, come look for him. They closed the door, and they never said where to go to look for him. That's unbelievable. Like I said, we we are so much at fault because we planted the seeds for the Khomeini revolution by supporting the unpopular, weak, vacillating Shah, who was a, a total criminal, ripping off his own country. And that's why Khomeini came to power, and these religious mm-hmm. fundamentalists, because they felt they needed to get rid of anything that was an American puppet. They they wanted their own native you know, government, mm-hmm. and they thought, him being a religious leader, exactly. that it would be a much more honest government. Of course, they found out right away that wasn't really the case. That's exactly what they I was basically saying. traded one dictatorship for another, which wasn't yeah. their original intention or goal. 
and you know a lot of them I think have come to regret that but you know they they want democracy they want you know the perceived western style democracy um, but they don't want us to give it to them you know they exactly and with every guest I had on this afternoon I asked them that question would you like to see the west intervene how would you like to see Obama help out would you like to see him cross the border 150,000 troops sitting in Iraq wouldn't be too hard another 70,000 I believe if I'm not mistaken in Afghanistan again it wouldn't right. be too Both hard of which border I ran. Mm-hmm. they all said to a person stay out you're doing the right thing just support us the way you are right now do not come in right and I, I think that's it, it. yes yeah. support them with words and positive you know reinforcement and Prayer you know whatever. we're here if you need us but we cannot we cannot take this on Mm-hmm. And if you're listening right now, folks, something I told people to do this afternoon, go to the website, Night Fright website. There's a link there that says email the Iranian embassy in Ottawa and let them know how you feel. And you can do that. And you know what, folks? Email them en masse. Call me old-fashioned. Let them know that there is indeed people watching and caring about what they're doing. That's www.nightfrightshow.com. Back to Lisa now. And uh, let's continue our talk with how all this connects to the Bobby Kennedy assassination. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're kind of all over the place here. So I, I, I don't think there's an Iranian connection, but I do think this man, Khyber Khan, I think the CIA got him. I think Congress wanted to shut him up. The CIA knew he was in trouble with the Shah by mm. threatening him with deportation. That was like giving him an oh, yeah. a death sentence, oh, essentially, because yeah. he would be killed if he went back to Iran. And I think at that point, he might have been willing to help. I have often thought if he did provide any help, it might have been as a, as a backup plan. I don't think there's any evidence that he was involved in the assassination. I do think, though, that you know the fact that so many people thought he was suspicious and he seemed to be planning things, and some people thought they saw him with Sirhan. I don't know. You know, it does seem like there might have been some involvement there. And like I said, he's giving a ride to Michael Wayne. It could be a coincidence, yeah. but what a hell of a coincidence! Mm, big time you know, coincidence. Guy who is running suspiciously from the pantry not to find a phone by his own admission mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> know, that's the official explanation you're listening to night fright your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio the time is now and now your host brent holland how yeah. about a girl in a polka dot dress? Right, a girl in a polka dot dress. Uh, several witnesses, the two key ones especially. Uh, one, Vincent DiPiero, saw a girl in a polka dot dress with her hand in the pantry moments before the shooting. Mm-hmm. And he thought they were together because they were clearly talking to each other and smiling, you know, looked like they were flirting. Uh, she was practically holding him in place the way Vincent DiPiero described it. And then shortly before the shooting, Sirhan stepped down and started firing, and the girl fled. And according to many other witnesses, she fled with another man. The three of them, at least, had come mm-hmm. into the pantry together. Two of them left, and Sirhan stayed and got apprehended. Later, I mean, moments later, Sandy Serrano, who is sitting in the back corner of the uh, ballroom just outside on the fire escape trying to get some fresh air, as she's sitting there, people that she had seen go up before, she'd seen the girl in the polka dot dress with two men go in the hotel before they'd walked past her. And all of a sudden, two of them, but not all three, are running back out. And the girl is now shouting, to, presumably to her partner, we shot him, we shot him. And Sandy said, who did you shoot? And she said, we shot Kennedy, and keeps running. 
And Sandy, you know, <laughs> you can't forget something like that. First of all, she's no horrified. She, she thinks this must have really happened. She she wanders, you know, in and starts asking people, and no one knows what she's talking about because people didn't know Kennedy was shot just then. So she actually ended up going downstairs before you know she got the news that Kennedy had been shot. And uh, she gives a very emotional recounting of this on TV at about 4 a.m. Western time. Mm -hmm. um, or I guess it's Pacific 1 a.m. Western time, 4 p.m. I don't, I remember, I have to check my notes, I don't want that. You see, you just educated me there, because I knew about the Sarah Sandy Serrano story, how she was a witness. I didn't know she had gone back in, and it hadn't been realized by the people still in the hall and stuff that right. they didn't know Bobby Kennedy had just been shot. Right. You see, I she thought it was before old they news. did, and that's yeah. interesting. That's very interesting. It, it makes it more credible. Absolutely. Absolutely. got away very, very quickly. And what's really interesting is that neither she nor Vince had talked before they gave their original statements. The police later tried to say mm -hmm. they talked to each other, and that's why. Both of them have denied that separately, and and... I believe them both on that. I don't think either one of them is making that up. But their descriptions were remarkably similar because they both said she had a funny nose with a little bit of a, you know, like a ski slope, but turned up nose. And uh, and they described the dress very similar, although when the police bought a bunch of dresses, mm -hmm. they identified two different dresses. But they were two very similar dresses. Either one could have, since none of the dresses were the correct one, it, it makes sense they would identify different dresses. And they weren't radically different, although, again, the police tried to really play that up, like, oh, they didn't even pick the same dress. Well, none of them were the ones the girl wore. You know, mm -hmm. So they each picked what they thought was closest. So they never well, even went through the motions where they would present pictures to them or anything, mug shots. Yeah. They never even did that with them, did they? Uh, no, they did. They they did. And um, that's when, when Sandy saw Sirhan, she realized that was the guy that she had seen going into the... Uh, ambassador Hotel, because like I said, she saw three people mm -hmm. go up, the girl in the polka dot dress and two guys, both, she thought they were Hispanic, but it was Arabic, but, you know, dark skin. Sure. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, but only two of them came back out, and the one who didn't come back out was, sure. she believed, Sirhan. And, and again, Vincent DiPiero, you know, was quite certain it was Sirhan who was mm -hmm. with the girl in the polka dot dress. Vincent DiPiero later identified a girl who is not wearing what they both described as a white dress with black polka dots or dark polka dots. He he picked out a girl from a photo lineup that was wearing that night a green dress with yellow lemons on it. And I asked him about that point blank. I, I talked to Vincent DePierre. I showed oh. him his original testimony. I said, do you still stand by this? Yes, that's what I said. Yes, that's what she looked like. Yes, she had dark hair. So then I pulled out the picture of Valerie Schulte, the woman that you know the police claimed he identified. And I said, she's not dark hair. And he looks at me and goes, well, for all I knew, all the other witnesses were police women in the photos, <laughs> which I thought was a very strange answer. And I think what he was trying to say was she was at least somebody he had seen in the pantry, and that's why he identified her. But I, he got very nervous at that mm. point. You could just see it's like he didn't want to lie to me, but he couldn't tell the truth for whatever reason. I said, but she doesn't have dark hair. And he goes, I know. Oh. You know, it's like, and I had actually I brought a tape of his own interrogation because the police, any witness who saw this girl in the polka dot dress, the police went after them with a vengeance and tried to hammer into them. You couldn't have seen what you thought you saw. She couldn't have said we shot him. She must have said they shot him. You know, they tried to get them to retract. And in Vincent's case, it's like you know she couldn't have been. Uh, 
that girl, she had to be this other girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I played the tape for him of his own session, and as he listened to it, his I, I had it queued up to a very specific spot where it was so obvious, and he listened to it, he goes, my God, they're putting words in my mouth. He said, oh. I did not know that. And he repeated it, he said, I did not know that. Because he was young, he was like 17 years old yeah, at the time. You know, kid, it's, eh? it's easy yeah. to understand why kids change their stories and retract things. He was scared out of his mind. The day he met mm-hmm. me, it took me about I don't know 10 phone calls before he finally met me in person. We had to have a lot of conversations by phone to build up some trust. And when he finally did meet me, he said that his girlfriend, who I understand he later married, thought I might kill him. Now, if this is a guy who doesn't think there was a conspiracy and that Sirhan was a lone shooter, why was he afraid to meet me and why did his girlfriend think I might kill him? That's explosive. <laughs> you know, what yeah. is going on? And he made a comment just in passing at the end, just as we were starting to break something, he was saying something mm-hmm. about how pleased he was that he had been able to keep his address secret because I made some joke, I think, about how hard it had been to find him originally. He's like, oh, yeah, that was part of my deal with the FBI. And I said, what deal with the FBI? And he changed the subject, and that was pretty much the end of the conversation. (laughs) But what I think, from what I talked about, he really thought the mob had done it, and so did his father. And I I don't. I really don't. And I think those Mm -hmm. who do are deliberately disinforming because it's not where the evidence leads. And I wish I had more time because I could be super clear about that. But... um, but I think his fear on that point was genuine because, you know, they were in L.A. and there was mom in L.A. and you mm-hmm. know, certainly in the restaurant business. And I think he genuinely feared that was what happened. And I'm sure that would be a convenient lie for the CIA to spread, too. The mob did it because that would get people to be quiet. They don't want to say, well, CIA did it, so shut up. You know, <laughs> they would blame it on the mob. That's what they would do. That's what they do. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, whatever deals he made were to protect himself and his father because they really thought the mob might come and kill them. They yeah. had somebody threaten me with the mob. Very You're kidding. Interesting story over this case, yeah. Well, there, tell us. Um, Please. There's a book out that uh, purports that uh, Onassis, you know, Ari Onassis mm-hmm. actually paid to have Robert Kennedy killed. Really? And I think that is sophisticated disinformation. I think Ari himself might have been fooled by that. I don't think that's what happened. Or if it did happen, it seems like it happened without his knowledge that he found out after the fact that his money had paid for it. Um, but somebody had called me before this book had come out, probably a couple years before that book had come out, a lawyer who had claimed that he had talked to Thane Eugene Caesar mm-hmm. and that his wife had that he had represented the wife of Thane Eugene Caesar in some like traffic incident and that Thane Eugene Caesar had come in and that he himself the lawyer had supposedly read about the case so he asked Thane Eugene Caesar point blank did you kill Bobby Kennedy and he felt that you know, he said that Thane Eugene Caesar answered him, and I'm thinking, why would he answer him? You're not his lawyer, you're her lawyer. He, you know, no no person in the right mind would confess a crime to somebody who wasn't their attorney, and even then they'd think twice about it. That's um, what I would think, yeah. But he claims that Thane Eugene Caesar said, yes, he did it for Onassis. So when I heard this, I just started laughing on the phone. I just started laughing. I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I said, there's no way that would have happened. You know, thank you for the entertainment value, but really I, I think you're full of it. Goodbye. Well, for the next several days, my phone would ring off the hook, and then no one would ever be there. So some oh. form of, like, intuition. And then somebody actually called and said, the mob's going to get you, and hung up. And this happened, I, I think, a couple of times. And, and I'm like, okay, so I don't fall for the Onassis line, so now the mob's going to get me? This just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. 
It's not like I ever said the mob did it. I don't believe the mob did. I really don't. I don't mm-hmm. believe that. I never have. And I think, like I said, the people who go on that line, I have strong suspicions about why they're saying that and who they really represent. Um, and I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> but, uh, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean the mob wasn't involved, but the CIA was using the mob, not okay. the other way around. There's no way the mob is using the CIA to frame the CIA for Kennedy's assassination. That's utter bullshit. <laughs> well, utter bullshit. This and, is what this show's like all about. If I had a lot of years to explain why that is utter bullshit, I would. <laughs> Lisa, I'm going to ask you, because this is what this show's all about, and I don't want to shy away from anything, certainly not people's opinions, it's an open forum. We had a guest on last week, Lamar Waldron, and he believes that it was the mob hit. And his book is one of the worst books on the case. And I'll tell you why, because sure. I've read both of their books, and they do this. They go, well, if this happened, then this would have happened. And since this would have happened, therefore it did happen. And since that did happen, then this. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you never established that did happen. You were just speculating, and now you've turned your speculation to a fact, and now you're claiming that fact as support for this other speculation, which you are now turning into a fact. It is an incredibly illogical way to proceed. It is bad history. It is, it is you know, absolutely not good for the community to, to put people like that forward because they are not solid historical researchers. That is bad historical practice. They'd be laughed out of university for that kind of reasoning. And they will purport things like, oh, Marcelo confessed on tape. Well, they don't tell you that the guy was, like, in jail for the rest of his life and would have said anything for a few extra bucks. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. once people are in jail, you know, those confessions aren't very credible. They'll say, they'll say or do anything to get a few extra bucks for a meal or a gift or a smoke or a drug or, you know, whatever they need, their family, security. You know, when people are dying, they will say what they need to say to protect the ones they love. And so I, I've never found that confession remotely credible, and yet they base a whole book on it. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, pick your poison. You know, you can believe that. I don't, and I have my reasons for why I don't. And okay, I, I can't enough. help but mention that his his co-author, Tom Hartman, mm-hmm. did say at a book signing, according to two people who were there, that he had, you know, at one point done some work for the CIA. I can't help but wonder if that has colored his his view of the case. And I don't mean by that that he's part of the cover-up. No, I don't. I think Tom Hartman is a really decent, nice guy. I just think that once you've worked with CIA people, it's Mm -hmm. impossible to imagine them having killed Kennedy because you know these people. They're your friends. They're your buddies. They seem like good, decent, honorable people. How could they have killed Kennedy? And that's how people like Alan Dulles and Richard Helms got away with so much of what they got away with. Richard Helms, you know, basically perjured himself before Congress, and even then they refused to prosecute, even when they found out, you know, that he'd been lying to them (laughs) because they'd been to his house for dinner. You know, you don't prosecute the guy whose house you've been to for dinner. (laughs) It's that kind of a world. And, uh, you know, so, like I said, that, that book is not good history. It is it is shoddy historical practice, you know, what what they have done there. And and that's unfortunate because unfortunately that book has gotten a lot of publicity. Okay. Both of their books. Yeah. I wanna ask you, do you give any credence to the report? And I found this on the Mary Farrell site in an article by Larry Hancock, who was also a guest here. He was our first guest for this series on Bobby Kennedy. That two days after the assassination there was a brown paper bag found in a back alley, and in that bag contained women's underwear, uh, shoes, stockings. 
and, and the a polka, polka dot. Yeah. yeah. Which was huge and oversized and definitely not the one worn okay. by the girl because the girl was, ah. by all accounts, busty. Let's just call it what it is. <laughs> Everybody, every male commented on her good figure, <laughs> which is code for busty. Because <laughs> they said, no, she wasn't thin, but she had a good figure. <laughs> So, no, that dress did not belong to the girl. No, actually, I, I, we mentioned Khan and his possible link to the girl. Mm-hmm. After Sandy's report went on the air, a guy back east who, um, uh, I think he was a policeman, and I have to check my notes because I haven't looked at this in a while. I can't think of his name. Uh, but he remembered a girl who had been at, a, you know, when the Shah had come mm-hmm. to New York, this girl had given him flowers. And he thought maybe she was a girl in a polka dot dress because something about the description matched in his mind. And he sent a photo of her back, a clipping from the New York Times or whatever, with writing on the back, you know, and mm-hmm. gave her name, which was Sheeran Khan, which was the daughter of Kyber Khan. Oh. So how bizarre that somebody in New York City who doesn't seem to have any connection to Kyber Khan or his daughter or the CIA or, you know, I don't know who he was. Um, I mean, he may have had a connection to CIA. He actually was going under an assumed name, but that was a common for, I think he was like a radio host and a police guy or something like that. Um, he had some sort of a double identity, as I remember. But he had sent this photo back, and he, he had basically put it on a flight. I mean, you know, it's like the equivalent of FedEx at the time. He yeah. thought it was a good enough lead that the LAPD needed to see it right away. So either Sharon Khan really did bear resemblance to that description, or somebody really wanted to implicate Khan in a hurry. And I can't help but feel that maybe he and his family were made backup passes mm. for Khan. That if it you know, was going to become a conspiracy, they were going to blame it on this guy. Because he was still a foreigner. Everybody hated him mm-hmm. because he was exposing, you know, Alan Dulles' payoffs from the Shah. And, you know, it's like, and on and on. you know, why not bring him down? And Because I, I, I don't think Kyber Khan actually seemed to like the Kennedys and believed in the Kennedys and was... And the Kennedys were fighting the same kind of corruption Khan was trying to expose. So it doesn't make sense to me that he would agree to kill Kennedy. It does make sense to me that somebody would want to frame him for that. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. So um, all this is very interesting. But uh, there is a mob element in the JFK case, I mean in the RFK case, mm-hmm. but it does link to the CIA. And that's where I want to talk about next because okay. that's a really strong and important link. And that's Johnny Roselli. Hang on to you that. Know? One last break. Okay. And then we okay. have the whole rest of the time without any more breaks. Okay. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Collins. Folks, we are speaking with the amazing Lisa Pease. She's got a great book out. You know, I want to tell everybody to go out and get this book. It's called The Assassinations. She's co-written it with Jim Diogenio. Jim Diogenio, for fans of this show, he was on a couple of weeks ago. And you can just go to the Night Fright Show website, www.nightfrightshow.com. Check out the archives. Just go back a couple of weeks. It was a terrific show. And you can get that book by going to her website. And again, on the Night Fright Show, you can click on her name, and that'll take you to her blog. Or right beside, to the right you're going to see a little picture of her book, The Assassinations. Click on that. That'll take you to ctka.net where you can buy the book. And uh, I highly recommend it. I mean, 
she's the best. Her <laughs> and Jim Diogenio. I mean, come on. Can it get any better than that for research? I don't think so. If you want the real deal, these are the folks that are going to give you that. And I say that with all sincerity and conviction. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. You are also listening, folks, to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University in beautiful Sudbury. We broadcast every Wednesday between 3 and 5 and 10 to midnight. You're listening to Cape Radio, Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, Wednesdays between 3.30 and 5.30. I want to say hi to my buddy Matthew Burke. CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Sunday nights at midnight. CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the Eastern Township, Sherbrooke, Quebec, Saturdays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings, 1 a.m. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario. Thanks, folks, for listening. I got some great emails from you guys this past week. Sunday nights, Monday mornings. 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. CKXU 88.3 FM, University of Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Alberta, Friday nights at midnight. CIVL 88.7 FM, University of the Fraser Valley, Abbotsford, British Columbia, Thursdays 2 p.m., Friday mornings at 2 a.m. I want to say hey to all the truckers trucking across the country doing their thing. Thank you for listening and tuning us in. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. We're speaking, as I said, with Lisa Pease. If you go to our website, www.nightfrightshow.com, you're going to find a plethora of information there. There's a list of all our affiliates there and uh, with their schedules, and you just click on the affiliate, they'll take you right to that website. No problem there. There's photos there. Their uh, ghost story from Zimbabwe, as I said, was sent to me. It's a terrific little ghost story. And there's a little BBC link under that, too, just kind of a verification. Apparently, They've taken away the ban on witch doctoring in Zimbabwe. Very interesting little story. And it's kind of, you know, you have to look at these things uh, from a different perspective, I guess, and, and maybe just in terms of esoteric thought possibilities. And that's what this show is all about also. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host... Brent Holland. Let's go back with Lisa Pease and let's talk a little bit now. I want to talk about the Mayhew connection because I think this okay. is the one that ties to everything. You have Sirhan, who seems to be possibly a CIA mind control victim. Right. But who in the CIA is running him and putting him in this position? I, I don't think it's James Angleton, but, you know, actually Angleton was involved in those operations and Richard Helm helped cover those up later, so who knows? Um, Thane Eugene Caesar, though, what's his connection? You know, the only way he connects to the CIA would be through Hughes and Lockheed, if through Hughes, you know, possibly through Robert Mayhew. Um, but the one that's most interesting to me is Sir Han's own lawyer, because if anybody should have been able to get off or at least, you know, get a better sentence, 
it sure seemed to be this guy. I mean, he had yeah. no history of violence. Like I said, everybody thought he was a quiet, polite kid. He has this diary. He has no recollection of writing, even though he said it looks like my handwriting, but I don't remember writing any of that. Um, that's the diary that totally says RFK must die, RFK must die. Sirhan has no explanation for how, how that diary came to be because he doesn't remember writing it. And, uh, and and then there's the distance issue. Like I said, he's in front, but the shots come from behind. And, and Sirhan's lawyer was made aware of that. Robert Blair Kaiser, who I mentioned earlier, had actually brought that to his attention. Um, but they didn't go anywhere with that, you know, during the trial. And, in fact, in chambers at one point, and that Lynn Mangan, who is an excellent researcher, who um, she's the one who found the, that the bullets, the markings on the bullets, didn't match, mm-hmm. you know, from the 1975 panel to the original markings from the pantry. I want to give her full credit for that because that was her discovery and a very important one. Um, but, but Graham Cooper was told flat out, and again, Lynn, Lynn showed this to me, in in session with the judge, you know, outside the courtroom, they, they meet in chambers. And the police basically said to him in front of the judge, we can't prove that these bullets came from the people we say they came from. And Cooper says, that's okay. I'll stipulate to whatever you want. Why would Cooper do that? He is Sirhan's defense attorney. If the police say, we can't prove our case, the the defense attorney is supposed to say, great, thank you very much. We're out of here. (laughs) That's how that's supposed to play out. The fact that it didn't makes you wonder what happened to Cooper. Was he compromised? And, in fact, he was. Because as soon as he announced that he was going to be part of, well, he didn't even announce. It was quiet. It was private. But he agreed to represent Sirhan. And right about the same time, he gets involved in this case on the Friars Club cheating scandal. Johnny Roselli, famous mobster and also the CIA's handpicked guy to run the Castro assassination plots, handpicked by Robert Mayhew, who has also worked with the CIA. Basically, CIA went to Mayhew and said, who can kill Castro? He says, I know these mobster guys. Let's get them. And Mayhew goes to Roselli, blah, blah, blah. And they go try and kill Castro. Um, so Roselli is both mob and CIA with you know a lot of connection to Robert Mayhew. Uh, Roselli is in this card cheating scandal. He's the guy who drilled a hole in the ceiling or, or had a hole drilled in the ceiling so that an associate could like see other people's cards and then signal them, you know, whether to you know fold or play on and continue the game. So they were you know cheating a lot of people out of money. Um, Cooper, during the trial, he gets a hold of a grand jury transcript. Now, that's illegal because that's a a secret document and no one's supposed to be able to see that. And it looks like I've really tried to track this down Mm -hmm. because it's actually a very complicated trail. But the best evidence I can find, it looks like, bottom line, Johnny Roselli was responsible for that transcript getting to Cooper's desk in front of the judge. It, it shows up on Cooper's desk. Literally, as the judge walks in, he sees this transcript, and Cooper's in big trouble because he's just—he's done something he could be disbarred over. And they kind of give him a probation period, and during which time he's representing Sirhan. At the end of that period, Sirhan is found guilty and actually condemned to death because that's when we still had the death penalty, which was overturned while Sirhan mm-hmm. was waiting to be killed, so he's still alive. Um, but. Cooper was then given the very lightest possible sentence, like a $500 fine or something really minimal, and literally he could have been disbarred over that. So you have to know that that was the dagger hanging over his head. If Sirhan gets off, you're going down. 
and what a horrible, and I'm sure it was never made explicit. It's not like somebody has to tell you these things. Mm -hmm. People are smart. They sniff these things out. They get a little hint dropped, and they know. They know what's at stake. I think Cooper was terrified. I think Cooper genuinely thought Serena was probably guilty anyway, so why bother? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure he felt there was, you know, probably some explanation for all this, and he just didn't care. I think he was out to protect himself. And I really think that's why he gave him such a shoddy job. Now, was Roselli doing this at his own behest, you know, mm -hmm. setting Cooper up? Maybe. But it's also possible, given his relationship with Mayhew, that that's what was going on. There's another very weird link to Mayhew in this case, a possible, very, very weak, tenuous link, but an interesting one, so I'm going to mention it. And that's that there's this curious character, again, this Reverend Owen character who was a, a TV evangelist who claimed he had picked up Sirhan as a hitchhiker oh, Mr. and that Bible. he had made a deal to sell him a horse the night of the assassination that he was going to bring it to the ambassador hotel and sell it to him outside. I mean, it's just <laughs> the weirdest story. It kind of makes no sense. And, you know, people linked Owen to a bunch of right-wing militia-type figures and stuff, but in, in a biography of Mayhew that I was reading, it talked about how Mayhew found this very, you know, famous preacher character who was evidently involved with a very young girl. And uh, the preacher had found out that Hughes had an illicit relationship with one of the members of his parish and was basically trying to blackmail Hughes over that. So Mayhew went out and got blackmail material on this preacher and, and shut him up that way. And I can't help but wonder if maybe that was Jerry Owen, because mm. that would make sense. <laughs> It'd be like... You know, Mayhew then suddenly connects to everything. He connects to St. Eugene Caesar through the Hughes Corporation. He connects to Roselli through the CIA's Castro plots. He connects to possibly, you know, Reverend Owen through this, mm -hmm. this, this blackmail scandal. And possibly he even connects to Michael Wayne. Like I said, who's, who's Wayne's friend on the Las Vegas police force and why is Wayne out practicing shooting with him moments, you know, not moments before, but I know what you days, mean. weeks, months yeah. before the assassination of Not Robert Kennedy. Before. What's mm -hmm. that about? No one ever followed up on that. It was, you know, question on his lie. You know, it came up during his lie detector session, and again, no one followed that because no one wanted to follow that. No one wanted to find out anything about a conspiracy. They only wanted to prove Sirhan guilty. That was their sole goal. They had no interest in pursuing conspiracy. Now, why do you think that is, Lisa? Well, two possibilities. Mm -hmm. One, that's kind of the police mentality. Or two, very curiously, the two policemen most responsible for the investigation at the LAPD's end both were connected to the CIA. Manny Pena had worked for the CIA for years, according to his brother, and was very proud of his service, his brother said on TV, <laughs> to the CIA. Uh, and... And I found an FBI file talking about how Pena was really running the LAPD operation, although the LAPD files don't indicate that. They try and make it sound like this guy is in charge or this guy is in charge. But from the FBI's point of view, it was clear that Pena was running the investigation. And Pena personally took on all the conspiracy things. And, in fact, with the girl in the polka dot dress, he claimed, you know, that it was Valerie Schulte. After telling the police, by the way, it was an entirely different woman who was the girl in the polka dot dress. And that, that will be in the book if I ever get it finished. <laughs> so he at least is provably lying in, you know, either to the public or to the police because he told different stories to each and they can't both be right. And he had to know they were in conflict. He's not a dumb man. Um, so 
that's the one. And then the other person who had a lot of influence was Hank Hernandez, who did all the lie detector yeah. sessions. So he's the sole arbiter of who's telling the truth or not. And he, too, had worked for the CIA. He'd worked for USAID when it was practically entirely a CIA front. You know, <laughs> he had helped with some training operations in Latin America. Both he and Manny Pena had been down in Latin America. I mean, there's just intelligence dripping from this. And after the assassination, somebody here in L.A. told me they thought it was so interesting because Hank Hernandez used to live in their neighborhood. He used to just be, you know, one of their neighbors in a very modest middle-class home. And mm-hmm. shortly after the assassination, suddenly he's living in San Marino in this pal- uh-huh. palatial estate. San Marino per capita income is higher than Beverly Hills. It's one of those quiet, rich con- enclaves you never hear about because the real rich go where you don't hear about them. <laughs> and that's where he's living. And he had set up a security firm that got all kinds of major government contracts and can we say payoff? You know, again, I can't prove that. No, I can't prove that. But boy, does that look suspicious to me. And um, did you know that Sudbury? You said the rich go. <laughs> yeah. I was told that we have something. It's hundred and seventy thousand people here, by the way. We have seven millionaires and one billionaire. Yeah, what is that about? Uh-huh. <laughs> Anyways, know. yeah, there's a conspiracy there, I'm sure. <laughs> Don't shoot me, folks. I'm just a composer, okay, when I leave the studio tonight? There seems to be, if I'm, you know, fully honest with what I, it looks like a deliberate cover. It looks like a couple of people. I think Manny Pena probably knew he was covering up for something. Okay. What he was covering up for, I don't think he knew. I don't think he cared. I think he was given a job to do, and he did it. You know, don't let conspiracy get out, and he didn't. I don't think he was involved. I don't think he was a shooter. I don't think he had any clue who did it. He may not even have had any clue the CIA was involved. Who knows? But it's clear that he was lying, that he knew he was lying, and that he was certainly in the position to cover it up. So if somebody wanted somebody to cover up, that's the guy you get. Um, and same with Hank Hernandez. He had to know these people were telling the truth. He could see it on the lie detector. Sandy Serrano and John Fahey, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. who I haven't even had time to talk about, but he's in the book. I mean, there were people who were so honest and credible. And when you hear their actual voices and you hear the tape and you hear the, the fear in their voice and they're just trying to tell the truth, John Fahey thought he might have spent the day with the girl in the polka dot dress because he met this woman who was talking about how Kennedy was going to be killed that night at the winning reception. Oh, man. And, and, uh, and he had these weird escapades where they were followed in a car and he had to, uh, you know, evade them. And she tried to steal his car keys at one point, you know, and yet she was asking for help. It was this weird come here, go away sort of thing happening with him all day and this girl. Um, and the police, you know, again, said he was making it all up, uh, that he had just, you know, was making this up to cover an affair he'd had with her. And he's like, no, I told my wife. And when you read the statements about him in other people's books, he sounds mm-hmm. flaky and incredible. But when you hear him on tape and you hear his full story beginning to end and you hear the way he's questioned, he is absolutely credible. And not only that, he starts to catch on and he says to the police, you're trying to get me to lie. You're trying to, and but he he misreads that as he said, you're trying to frame me, and that's not what they were trying to do. They were clearly trying to cover up a conspiracy, but he thought they were somehow trying to implicate him because he knew they were trying to get him to say things that weren't true. And it was interesting because Hernandez even says, you know, there might be a congressional investigation of this at some point. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want this on the record. And, you know, it's like thinking way ahead. Why would they think that if it was such an open and shut, cut and dried case? You know. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. 
And now your host, Brent Holland. Lisa, we have about 10 minutes left before we have to wrap up. At the beginning of the show, I asked you to walk us through the official story. Now I would like to have you walk us through your version of those events. I think I think the CIA was terrified that Robert Kennedy was going to expose their role in his brother's assassination. There's oh. a lot of evidence, and a lot of it's in the book Brothers, which I recommend by David Talbot. That's right. I don't recommend book. everything in the book. In fact, I even scribbled in the book something I rarely do because I hate to deface a book. But a couple pages, I said this is utter bullshit, <laughs> and that's mostly the stuff about uh, Judith Miller, which I just don't buy into at all. Okay. But uh, but. There's good evidence that the CIA knew that Bobby Kennedy had a very serious interest in what had really happened and that Bobby Kennedy did not believe the official verdict. In public, that's what he would say because he didn't want to, you know, without proof, what could he do? He'd look like a nutty conspiracy theorist and he didn't want to go there. But quietly, he had different friends investigating different parts of the case. So I think that was the motive. I think the CIA really saw him as a potential threat and needed to take him out before he became president. I think how they did it, I think they got a mind-controlled patsy who, like in a magic act, you have the magician and his assistant, you know, the Mm -hmm. distraction. (laughs) They put up this spectacle so you can't see what's really going on in the act. I think that was Sir Hans role in the pantry. He was there to draw focus, to draw attention. I believe from my own research, and again, I don't have time to go into why I believe this, but I will say that FBI agent Bill Turner also believes this, and he has more of a forensic background than I do, we both believe Sirhan was firing blanks in the pantry. Several people described the gun as sounding not like actual shots, but as a cap gun. Really? And, and Rafer Johnson actually said it looked like a cap gun. It was throwing off residue. Other people described a little shower of paper. That's what you get when you fire a blank, which is what a cap gun fires. Um, even when the gun was turned into evidence, there was a moment where the police gave two different gun models, neither of which was the one in evidence. Oh, my and, and yet, if you combine them, yes. one combination, you know, is like one said 55SA and the other said 56A or vice versa. Again, I'm, I'm being imprecise, but it's in my article. And if you cut those and splice those a different way, one of those is a cap gun. It's, it's possible. I don't know if this is what happens. possible that Sirhan literally had a cap gun and then somebody either switched the gun later or or just hit that fact. The, the gun that was originally tagged as the grand jury exhibit also does not appear to be in existence anymore. There's no, the the gun that's currently assumed to be the Sirhan gun does not have a grand jury exhibit tab, so we don't know if it's the same gun that was originally turned in or not. It may have been, maybe the tag fell off. We just don't know, and that's frustrating. That's why the chain of evidence is critical. That's why tags should never be removed. Everything must be maintained. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, so I believe Sirhan was there to draw focus so that the real assassins, and I do say that plural because if Sirhan's firing blank and there's 12 bullets in the pantry, you still have to have two additional shooters. I really do believe Thane Eugene Caesar fired all the shots that hit Kennedy. He was the only person close enough with a weapon to be in the position to do it. His behavior has been remarkably uh, suspicious and dishonest since then. He, he claimed he had sold a gun before the assassination that it turned out he sold after the assassination I find him highly suspicious you know I don't know if there'll ever be evidence enough to convict him but in my mind mm-hmm. you know and I, I don't like to prejudge but in this case I think there's enough evidence in my mind to consider him a guilty party um, 
I think Michael Wayne was very likely the other shooter. I really do think Michael mm-hmm. Wayne did some handoff somewhere that you know the gun he used is, <laughs> was long gone before he was caught. Uh, you know, I think the fact that he lied on you know or, or that he told the truth as lie detector and the police lied for him indicates a little bit that the police indicates at a minimum they weren't interested in the truth. At a maximum, they were deliberately part of the cover-up. And I, I really do, the LAPD, which I think is a fabulous police force, my God, you know, they're they're wonderful. I don't want to, you know, implicate the entire force any more than I want to implicate the entire CIA. These organizations have a lot of good people in them. But every organization has its bad apples. And I really think it was, unfortunately, the bad apples who ran <laughs> the LAPD's investigation. And, again, whether it was a deliberate cover-up or just a laziness cover-up or mm-hmm. a we-don't-want-to-go-there cover-up, that's harder to prove. I, you know, I don't see any indication of direct knowledge. I don't think they, they didn't seem very savvy about what they were covering up, especially in the early days. The first few people who interviewed people, everything was really above board and honest. It really wasn't until it started looking like a conspiracy that things started to get shady. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, whatever the impulse was, definitely there was a cover-up. I just can't assign a motive to it because it's not clear enough to that. But there was absolutely a cover-up of, of the real facts of the case. Um I, I do believe Robert Mayhew was very likely involved. I also heard this from two people, John Meyer, who was one of the people. There are two John Meyers who worked for Hughes. This is the one whose name is spelled M-E-I-E-R, not Johnny Meyer, who is M-E-Y-E-R. Okay. But, uh, M-E-I-E-R Meyer said that he had met with Hughes not long, I mean, met with J. Edgar Hoover not long after the uh, Robert Kennedy assassination, which is very credible because at that point Meyer was a mover and a shaker and knew a lot of people in very high places. It's not at all unbelievable he talked to Hoover. He claims Hoover told him at that time that the Robert Kennedy assassination was a Mayhew operation. Hmm. Now, a, a researcher here in L.A. heard me say that and came up to me and said, oh, my God, my dad used to tell me the same thing. His dad was a Mason and was friends with a lot of people on the L.A. police force. I, I forget if it's, I think his friend was in the L.A. police force, but he wasn't a detective, but he knew some of the detectives. And he claimed the detectives had told his father that it was a Mayhew operation. Wow. So that's pretty damn interesting to me. And like I said, Mayhew is the one guy that does seem to connect to all these figures that don't seem to connect to each other any other way. Especially if, if you, if, if that Jerry, if it, Jerry Owen is the preacher that he ended up counter blackmailing, that would explain a lot <laughs> and again don't know because there was no name in, in the book and you know I may mm-hmm. never have the time to try and track down the files mm-hmm. if, if that data even exists uh, you know at this point so a lot of this is just too much time has gone past we may never get the answers on some of this but to me it is absolutely clear that Sirhan did not kill Robert Kennedy you know I, I, I believe it's pretty clear that Sirhan was firing blanks that Sirhan did not kill anybody and did not injure anybody in the pantry I know other people disagree. Paul Schrade believes, you know, Sirhan did fire bullets, and a lot of people do believe that. I don't, because, like I said, the witness reports I've read are very... They also, the witnesses describe a flash flame from the gun. When you burn a blank, you're firing a compressed wad of paper, and it flash burns, and there's a visible flame. Mm-hmm. But when you fire gunpowder, at most you get a little smoke, you know, a little puff, but you don't see a flame when you fire an actual bullet. And there were a number of witnesses who described seeing flames coming out of the gun. To me, again, that's a strong indication that Sirhan was firing blanks and not bullets. And again, it would make sense. If he is a hypnotized guy, 
he's in an altered mental state. You don't mm-hmm. want him to be your assassin. What if he shoots the wrong guy? Well, this is what it, if in eh? his altered state he shoots your real assassin before he gets the job done? With a polka it makes dot much lady. more sense mm-hmm. that he would be firing blanks. And like I said, they're noisy. They're, they, they're mm-hmm. visible. It would draw focus like nobody's business. And once all eyes are there, anything could happen in that pantry. There's a great video online, and I... I should find it and send you a link. Please, and, and I'll you put watch it, up, it sure. you're, You think you're looking for something, and then at the end of it, they ask you a question about something you weren't looking for, and you didn't see it because that's not what you were looking for. Uh-huh. And to me, that's the perfect analogy of what happened in the pantry. Everybody saw Sirhan firing. Their eyes went there. If if there had been ten other shooters in the room, they would not have noticed exactly. <laughs> because they were so intent on protecting themselves and watching that gun and seeing where it went and trying to memorize that shooter's face because that was the one they saw first. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I believe happened. Lisa, we have about one minute. I want to ask you very quickly, where do we go to next, not only with the Bobby Kennedy assassination, but Martin and John also, and Malcolm X? Do we continue? Do we let them go and put them to bed? I think there are so many things we need to take care of. I think... This history is so important to understand because it's ongoing. I mean, the the techniques of cover-up, once you learn them and you start to recognize the patterns, you can see them in current events. I think the trick is not to get stuck in the past, meaning to me, my interest in these cases isn't because of the Kennedys or because of Martin Luther King. It's because this stuff could be happening right now. It could happen to Obama. It could happen at any moment. Mm -hmm. I want to understand the mechanism of cover-up I can help expose it anywhere it is occurring. And that's why I stay with this. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Pollard. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. And I want to give you kudos once again. Lisa Pease, folks, she filled in tonight. We were supposed to have Mark Sobel on with William Law. They have released a video. Um, oh, it's a very good video, too. I haven't seen it, and I was anxious to have them on. But Mark Sobel took sick, and William Law emailed me uh, frantically last week. And Lisa stepped up to the plate and just filled in incredibly. And I can't think of a better way to end off this series on Bobby Kennedy them with Lisa Pease. Once again, Lisa, you have blown us all away. And thank you so much for coming on. Well, you know, November's not far, and we all know what that means, JFK. All right. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lisa. And uh, I want to send you an email. Well, I'm going to ask you real quick. We've got about 30 seconds. There was a report going to the JFK case where two people were seen in the grassy knoll two days before the assassination apparently with guns, and they were targeting your guns. The police gave chase but never caught them. Do you know anything about that? I, I remember reading about it, but, you know, there's so many tales like that that okay. go nowhere. And, and that's the stuff, i got to say, I get really, I try and avoid those kind of specifics. I think it's so important to, to try and keep with the bigger picture and the stuff that can be proved, that can link somewhere. You know, people see things, you know, there's stuff in the RFK case where two police officers supposedly went in and were trying to obtain some busboy uniforms a couple of days before the assassination of Robert Kennedy. 
you know, was it uh-huh. related? Was it not? That's a pretty bizarre little thing to have happening, but it could be unrelated, and there's no way to track who did it and why mm. spend time on it. You know, it's one of those interesting but goes nowhere. You know, I, I'm a real hard fact kind of person. It's, and to me, a hard fact is one that is self-incriminating. When the police lie to each other, that's a very useful fact. Absolutely. You know, when they lie to us, that's not so useful. <laughs> you know? I when they lie to each other, wow, now you start to see who's in the know and who isn't. Those things are incredibly useful. And it takes a lot of research to find that kind of stuff. But that, to me, is, is the way to the top. <laughs> I'm going to mention our website right now. www.nightfrightshow.com. www.nightfrightshow.com. FrightShow.com. And I've made that a focal point, folks, for everybody that listens to Night Fright. You can go there. There's links to the guests that we have on to their own personal sites. In Lisa's case, for example, click on the little thing that says Lisa Pease. You're going to go right to her blog. Click on the book, and you're going to go right to the book that says The Assassination. So all that to say, folks, is I've made the website a focal point. You can go there, click on the book, uh, right beside Lisa Pease, it says The Assassinations. It was written with Jim DiEugenio, another great guest I've had on the show, talking about Bobby Kennedy and JFK also in the past. That'll take you to their website, which is ctka.net, ctka.net. Most important thing there, folks, the archives. You can go to the archives, and all the shows since October, since we started streaming, are there. And uh, just download. They're free to download. Enjoy yourself. There's shows on Bigfoot. There's shows on paranormal activity. I had a woman on here um, a few weeks ago, and and she was talking about she'd just come from a haunting, and that was electric. Uh, So there's all kinds of stuff there for you to listen to. I want to thank you once again, Lisa, and uh, I'll be talking to you. All righty, take care. You thanks. Bye now. Bye. That was Lisa Peace, folks. What a great way to end our series on the Bobby Kennedy assassination and how it all came together. That was terrific. I'm Brent Holland for Night Fright. Thanks for listening. See you next time. to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 